Okay, we're underway. Awesome. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Joe. It's Friday. It is. It is Friday, and it's the end of the semester. How do you How do you feel about that? Are you are you feeling under the gun at the end of the semester? Are you you well, taking no, sigh relief? My, what do you My what exams do you are my exams have been given. Uh, so next step is grading, and uh, of course, commencement I, is great. Right. Everyone's very happy. Yeah. Um, and there are a range of things going on as I'm trying to wrap some stuff up, an independent project with a student and stuff like that. So there's, but we shift to a different, it's like a different time of year because mm-hmm. classes aren't meeting. So things are much more kind of jumbled and, uh, grabbing different things in different orders. And, you know, I, I feel like I absorb the student's stress at this time of year. Really? I do. I mean, I don't like the exam period. I don't like yeah, it. It's not fun. I mean, it's not, it, no one's having a great time. Yeah. Because it's very intense and be- and it's very consequential. It's a lot riding on exams for people. And so, you know, yeah, there's a lot of stress. You're right. What do, what do you do with, uh, what, what do you do to get rid of stress? What how, do we- how do you deal with this? How do you cope? How do you cope with uh, <laughs> the crushing <laughs> existential, existential crisis of, of modern life? That that comes and and you know comes to a head during the exam period. How do you Jeez. how do you cope? I don't by not listening to questions like that. Oh, okay. My goodness. I you know you know what I recommend? What? Kerbal Space Program. Have you played this game? No. What is oh, it? Oh my gosh, the greatest game ever. What is it called? Kerbal Space Program. Purple Space Program. Kerbal. K e r b a l. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I recommend it highly. All right, I will look into that. This is a game where you you make rockets. You you explore the you explore a solar system. Okay. What's uh, you, the you learn about platform orb- orbital for mechanics and everything? Mac or PC? Oh, all right. Neat. You get it on Steam. Okay. Or uh, or download it. Fantastic Neat. game. I will. I will look into that. It, it helps you realize your place in the cosmos. Nice. It helps you understand how things interact. You can even download mods for it that will be, turn it into like the real solar system. So you're launching like real spacecraft. Oh, uh, what air. I find very, um, I find it is great to relieve stress to play with my dogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, to take them for a walk. Right. Um, is that kind of the same thing as Kerbal Space Program, you think? Sure. Plays the same role, you think? Uh, I don't, well, not having done the other, I don't know, but. Right. Because um, I, well, I've walked dogs and yeah, I, I enjoy that too. Yeah. That, I find that does take stress away. Uh, how did this, what, how did this thing come up uh, a couple of weeks ago? Um, the philosophy bites thing about future selves. Do you remember that? I do remember that we chatted about it. I don't remember how it came What's up. What's the context? Anyway, so... Um, so we, Philosophy Bites is a great podcast, by the way. If our if, listener, if you haven't subscribed to it, you give, it a, give it a whirl. Yeah, definitely worth doing. So one, one thing that... Um, and I haven't managed to do this yet, partly because I've been busy with end of the semester stuff, but um, uh, li- listener Josh Lee on Twitter uh, tweeted at me and asked whether I've listened to Yale's free online course on the philosophy of death. Oh, which he says is amazing. He says amazing stuff. So mm. that's it's on my list of things to do after the after the grading is done. Can we link to that in the show notes? Uh, if I can, I haven't found it yet. Oh, okay. uh, um, yes, but we can. Yeah, we can. Uh, maybe we should hold off on a link until I'm able to uh, to take the course. Ah, I, I feel like I'll know something more about death after I finish it. Okay. Do we have any feedback? Uh, yeah, we. Um, one of the f- we actually, the email, we, you know, email ebbs and flows. 
Like yeah. sometimes we get a lot of feedback, right? And it doesn't always relate to a particular program. Right. It's just sometimes it seems to be we've gotten a lot of messages, other times not. And one yeah. of the few emails we've gotten in the last few weeks uh, was, and I've mentioned it before. This is to oral argument podcast at gmail.com. Correct. Oral argument podcast at gmail.com. We, we got a, a, a very fun email from Nicholas Georgiakopoulos, um, fan of the show, longtime listener. Uh, and he is uh, giving us some advice about different uh, mature beverages, as I like to call them, different mature beverages that we could try. So he has a single we malt. We teased this on the last show. And, yeah. And you, yeah, you so said, he, yeah. So no. he has a um, a recommendation of a scotch that he, I guess he's a, a fan of. Right. We have not acquired this yet. We have not. It's called Lagavulin. I have heard of Lagavulin before, so I'm, I think that's uh, enjoyed by by many uh, connoisseurs of scotch um a bourbon a kentucky bourbon called eagle rare i've not heard of that mm-hmm. uh, some of our colleagues might have heard of it yeah they seem to be bourbon fans kentucky oh. bourbon fans huh. so some of our colleagues here at uga i don't i don't um, know. yeah and uh he also mentions a a greek beverage um called uh mastiha i think i'm pronouncing that right although maybe i'm not uh, from uh, from Kios, uh, or maybe it's Kios. Um, <laughs> well, you uh, might be. They're not. It's it's no one's last name. So you there's a good right. Ch- so yeah. who knows if I'm who pronouncing knows, yeah. it right? Um, anywho, uh, that sounds like a liqueur. Uh, the last one, Mastija, and uh, yeah, we should try these things. I feel like we should try we them right now. <laughs> do an oral argument tasting. We do need to do that. So we're gonna set it up. We're gonna we're gonna do, we're gonna go all Georgia Coppolis on it and, and get all this stuff. And we're going to, we're going to try the Talisker. We're going to compare it to Lagavulin. We're yeah, gonna, yeah. Yeah. And we're, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I drank. And then we're going to need a really big cup of bunny coffee. Cause we're <laughs> well, going to be knackered. Well, that's true. So, so, uh, two things. One, I'm at the end of Paul's Talisker. We're done with that. There's no more Paul's Talisker oh, okay. left. Um, so now you have birthday Talisker. So I've, that's right. So, so Joe, for my birthday, you bought me, Another bottle of Talisker. Different, a different Talisker. A slightly different Talisker, and we're going to get into that next. Now, the other thing is, this program is brought to you by listener-provided coffee, but it's not Bunny's coffee. We, we went through that. We went mm. through that in, in, in a heartbeat. So this was Zabar's coffee. This is Zabar. So this is uh, yet another item from the uh, basket of goodness uh, from Zabar sent to us by listener Adam. Yay! Uh, in New York. So uh, thank you, Adam. This is awesome. Uh, it actually worked quite well. This is pre-ground Zabar's coffee. I forget which one this one was. I think this was Zabar's blend because you you took yes, the, the I took the French Italian. Yeah, and I put it through the Chemex, and I think it's actually quite tasty. It was very rich. I, it's the only uh, kind of pre ground coffee I've ever done in the Chemex that did not turn out like you know a little bit bitter and 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 ashy. This it was really good. Yeah, really there was good. No ash in this. It was it was very rich. Yeah, very rich, but but also you could taste. If the it coffee. had gotten a little, it, it was it was headed toward bitter. Yeah, but it it did not arrive. <laughs> right, it was like, oh, I'm driving near bitter, <laughs> but and you can see it out the window. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But you're not there. No, no. Yeah, it, it's not over extracted. It's uh, it, it um, you know, the, the Chemex worked for it. I was thinking I would have to do like the AeroPress or something like that. Mm. Uh, to avoid that, but no, it, it came out very well. So, thank you, Adam. This is fantastic. Uh, yes, we'll be enjoying it. Uh, we'll be enjoying it again. I think uh, next week, unless we do this in the evening, right? In which case, we'll be uh, we'll be Georgia Coppolising it. 
Is that now a verb? I, I don't think he would, <laughs> as much a fan as he is of the show, and, and we love that, I don't think he would like us to turn his verb, his name into a verb. Forgetting involving, all knackered? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Knackered. Is that an, that's an English word for underwear, isn't it? <laughs> I think you're thinking of bloomers. <laughs> no, yeah, maybe, maybe I am. I think, I think that's a photography term. Bloomers? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the, and the light goes all funny. All right. What, what else? What else do we have? Nothing. I, there's I nothing, nothing else. I feel like there's got to be something. Well, if else. you feel it, then it must be true. Why don't you tell us what it is? Um. Well, I don't know. We got we got Ambarto on today. Yay! After some technical snafus. Yeah, we did. There were some real technical challenges. Yeah, she had like a she had a mic and a headphone plugged in, and they were basically on her computer fighting with one another yeah. for control of the sound and. <clears throat> went back and forth. It ended up. It ended up okay. Yeah. No. We, I think it, we got I think it worked it sounded out. Great. We, we got we got it worked out, and um, so she's joining us today to talk about. I think let's let's face it. This conversation was just barely scratching the surface. Yeah. I mean, it's a. Um, uh, you, you know, she came on to talk about about China and I. Is particular like rule of law and IP law in China, and yeah, like, like we were saying, this is like. It's like trying to have a conversation about law in America, <laughs> yeah. Which it's just so broad, right? Yeah, um, frustrating. You know, yeah, you, it it is kind of frustrating in a way. And she's in, yeah, as well here, like she's dealing with that, right? Like, how yeah. do I write this next paper? It's frustrating to kind of exactly to think about how even to describe uh, what's going on. I feel like we need more shows about China, though. Sure. Um. Yeah. I'll learn something every time because I, my knowledge base is so so poor. Yeah. When it comes to China, uh, how can I do, else? how can I, but learn? Yeah. I think that's the struggle. Yeah. I'm trying to stall here. Cause I think like there's something else, but not. So I think people just want us to get on with it. Yeah. Don't you think? Yeah, I agree. Okay. So let's do it. Boy, I, you know, the listeners are not going to hear this, um, because I'm going to cut it all out this time okay. for real. Right. But, yeah. but boy, we just jumped through some technological hurdles there. Yeah, to br- thank to bring you for the show. interpretation. That was awesome. Now it's uh, and and you've done these kinds of things before, right? Me? Oh, sure. Yeah. So I've I never know. had trouble like this before. Yeah, it's, you know what? It, and and uh, it could be that Skype was updated, so we use Skype to talk to the guests, and it's got all kinds yeah. of settings about inputs and outputs, and and it changes them on you. Like you'll put well, something no, in, and That's, it changes. I them. luckily I got in at eight this morning, and I went to log on, and it wouldn't let me log on. It didn't recognize my password, and then it strong armed me into setting up a Microsoft account. Oh boy. Yikes. And then I had to set the Microsoft account. Then I went back to Skype and I had to set up a Microsoft account. So I tried that password and no, 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 it would take my old Skype password. Really? So that, yeah, no, it's okay. And then I rebooted a couple of times, but I was like so proud of myself for getting that done early. <laughs> oh, it's smooth sailing now. Woo-hoo. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I've got kind of a homebrew set up here with all this stuff and it just, you know, it's, it, there were like a thousand settings to, you know, each one is simple, but it's the death of a thousand cuts. And well, yeah, and yeah. in that way, it's kind of funny that it ever works. <laughs> it's like yeah, it, no, it is. That's actually the miracle that that there that there's enough standardization and consistency that most of the time uh, we have no trouble at all, um, and and that's actually quite surprising when you think about it. No, it, it is because uh, you know if you've tried to do distance learning stuff, it seems like about a fifty percent. It's like a crapshoot sometimes. Oh wow, yeah. Machine this that you know, and I oh gosh. I recorded um I recorded a 2 hour class 
and it cut out after 10 minutes. There was still video because it was art loss. So I was like showing paintings. So they could see the paintings, but my voice cut out after 10 minutes. Oh, no. Re-recording a two-hour class was really daunting. Oh, no. Yeah. It's the thing about, I mean, about these, if it's an interactive class, then it's not just so everybody has to be set up right. Yeah. yeah. And so if it's, if the sad, if the settings that are, at all, are at all fiddly, um, someone's not going to be set up right. And then it can be, you've got this, you know, rat's nest of settings to go through to figure out on whose end the problem is and how many people yeah. have these. And, and yeah, and the worst thing about Skype is it's got like settings in three different places. And, uh, this yeah, is a it's, sense it's in handy, which, but not that logical. Yeah. And, the, and it's, uh, so this is a. It seems to me this is an area where the the interface stuff and the setting stuff it hasn't caught up yet to the way people actually want to use it. Right. Uh, I, yeah, I found with Skype. I remembered I had a flashback when I downloaded the new version. Well, forced me to download the new version. The very first time I got it, I couldn't figure out how to do anything. Like I couldn't figure out how to get to the homepage where you just make a call. Right. Like it was giving me all these screens, and I was like sweating. Like how do I just? Make a call. Like, like I could figure out how to put money on, and then you know, I mean, I could do stuff. But oh, like they, the actual... they make it easy. They make it easy to figure out how to put money on. That's... <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's oh gosh. Well, and so then I went through this when they updated. I, I had to go into the health function, going, "How do I get to homepage?" And apparently, that's a real question other people asked. So there was a boy. link, and it took me to the homepage. Like, oh my gosh. See, I see. I think you're going to get this kind of. Uh, you're you're going to get a. Um, uh, these kinds of difficulties whenever the value that you get out of the thing is not where the provider of the service is getting their value because th- all their incentives are trying to direct you into the ways that they're getting value out of it. And actually, right. I don't know Skype's. I don't know what Microsoft's model is with Skype. I don't know if they know. Um, yeah, but, so you know, it's like, while you're trying to make a call, please look at this ad. And while you're <laughs> trying to type in your credit card number, right. you know, which we autocomplete for you, uh, please look at this additional ad. Right. And yeah. What, what oh. you want is you want to launch the thing and you want it to have a window where you can make just, a freaking call. Yeah. You either type yeah, in a number or type in a name or click one of the people in your list. And then it's, you know, it, it'll say, hey, I noticed you've got like two different, you've got a microphone, you've got an internal microphone. Which one do you want to use? And not like in a clippy way. You don't want clippy yeah, coming yeah, up yeah. asking yeah, this. You just want a little box yeah. instead of a pull down menu, which is hidden in a preferences setting. Like since which you can't even find the page. Yeah. yeah because that's the most important thing there is, right? The most right. important thing is like, where is, how is the person going to hear my voice? That's, you know, yeah, and, and, yeah. and if you've got three different things plugged in that could possibly do that, it needs to alert you to pick one. Right. Yeah. Anyway. Not only that, but it tried to force me to um, change my homepage to MSN and my default search to Bing. <laughs> I saw it. It did. I'm not making that up. I had to uncheck those things. I dodged that ball. It was like, come on. Well, I guess so now we do have some insight into how they intend to monetize yeah. Skype. <laughs> Yikes. Oh my gosh. Well, you know, it'll take a while for the new CEO of Microsoft to um to rationalize all this, I think. Yeah. yeah he totally. said it's inheriting kind of a I don't know. Well, we're not we're not going to talk about all this right so, now. So, Anne, you mentioned that you're um uh I'm actually in the middle of moving homes across town here in Athens right. myself, so I sold my place until I can relate to um various real estate professionals springing things on you in the last minute. But so you're selling your home in New York because you're relocating to New Hampshire. Congratulations on that, by the way. Thank you so much. Why don't you tell us a bit about what, so you're going to be at the University of New Hampshire Law School. What are you going to be doing up there? And I think it's wonderful. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. It's going to be, I'll still be a law professor and I'll be teaching half a load, but I will also be directing their Franklin Pierce Intellectual Property Center. Um, so Franklin Pierce used to be the identity of the entire law school, and it was a very intellectual property law-oriented law school, though, of course, you know, the, the basics also. 
And then they merge with the University of New Hampshire. And uh, that's been, the nuts and bolts of that have been kind of unfolding and taking a while. And one of the things, uh, actually two things happened. One of the things that happened was the previous director, Alexandra Roberts, was no longer able to be the director because she was an untenured, non-tenured track administrator. Okay. And when they merged, it was required by the university that any person at the like director level has to be a tenured person. So one of my biggest concerns, and I had some frank conversations, I wanted to make sure I was not taking her job because I adore her. I think she's just fabulous. But it turned out it had been her dream to move over to the tenure track and just be a professor. So we both got our dream. She got to move over and do that. And uh, so she's now tenure track, and they're going to give her credit for her previous you know, teaching and scholarship. And I will take over as the director. So I'm going to be part-time administrator. I'm going to have sort of, you know, budgets and money and responsibilities. I'll be able to hold conferences. And um, I'm coming up with some other ideas, some um, just kind of policy impact stuff that I'm hoping to get the university involved in. So the second thing that happened was when Franklin Pierce became the University of New Hampshire, a lot of people had no idea what the school was. <laughs> so um, the Franklin Pierce part just became the Franklin Pierce Intellectual Property Center. So one part of my job is to make sure people understand that University of New Hampshire, UNH, is Franklin Pierce, and we're still doing intellectual property. By my count, is, is, is it six law schools for you, Anne? This is the sixth one? Yes, one, two, well, three, it'll really four, be the third five, one, six. because when you're a visitor, you don't... Yeah, no, it counts. That counts. Kind of, you think that it counts. counts. So yeah, no, yeah. it'll be... So Idaho, Dayton, South Carolina, Pace, and the five, uh, New Hampshire. So, so yeah, say something uh, at the 20,000 foot no, level no, what, about well, what, what I want to hear is which one is the best. Well, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> that's awkward. Um, <laughs> actually, I mean, South Carolina has a lot of great things going for it. Like, I don't think any of them are bad places. I, at that point, my, after my son graduated high school and I've been there so long and I was, oh, there were some things I was definitely feeling frustrated about. Um, I had the opportunity to come to Pace and come really home to New York where all my family is, right. and it was just such an exciting opportunity. And then since I left, South Carolina did a ton of hiring, and in this market where there's not a lot of hiring going on, wow, they turbocharged the faculty. Right. The faculty is really good. There's a lot of young people, or not, they're not necessarily age young, but junior people just excited about teaching, doing exciting scholarship. So South Carolina is like a much better law school than when I left. Not because I left, I hope, but, um, <laughs> but it's, a, it's a much better law school. It's got a great faculty. And so I could look at it and say, that's great. And then um, Pace is the strong environmental you know, presence. But Pace has been you know, buffeted by some of the same things that affected private universities. When I got into teaching in 1995, that was my first year of the VAP, so it's, it's 20 years now. Um, when I got into teaching, private schools were sort of, they were paying more, you had more, you know, because they charge higher tuition, you had more like travel money or, you know, they were just richer schools generally. So private schools were seen as sort of a, a better bet. And then um, with the changes, the, the elite private schools, I think, are mostly still doing very well. But um, the non-elite private schools are struggling and Pace is one of them. Um, basically, you know, there's less interest in going to law school and, you know, we have to pay our bills. So right. you're in this situation where you have to attract students and, um, you want students that have a realistic chance of liking law school, succeeding in law school, being happy in law school, passing the bar and getting jobs. Right. And so that's what we want to do. So we try to only admit those folks that hit all those criteria, but the pool is smaller. So money has been tight. 
Um, and I think in the long run, Pace is going to be fine. They have the strong environmental program, and it's a great faculty here. And, and I'm, I'm going to do, do you a favor here. I'm going to help you out. Okay. Because um, uh, uh, I'm going to summarize everything that you just said. Oh, okay. um, and, uh, and this is, I think, I think you'll find this helpful. Every place you've ever taught is great. Yes. Uh, but New Hampshire may be, at least for you now, the greatest. <laughs> right? Well, I'm really excited about, um, I'm excited about the administrative stuff. I think there's some parts of the job that really interest me and I'm going to be really good at. There are a few parts of the job I dread and I'm not going to be good at, but I'm going to, uh, it's time in my life to, to, to perfect those skills, to get better at those skills. And uh, really do a good job there. I'm really excited about it. Well, we're, should, do you want to talk IP a little bit? I sure should we, do. Should we get in the weeds? I sure and yes. I don't know if you wanted to talk about. You know, I took a quick look at the at the piece about China. I know you were on okay. uh, Fulbright in China. We can talk about right. that. But you also do, you've done this stuff with IP and porn. Oh yes, and um, and a, a number of other things. So look, you know, I don't. I just want to hear you know the wisdom of the Barto. Oh, um, so <laughs> I don't. I don't much care. You know, and, and of course, Joe is the. IP person uh, right. in this in our in our little duo here. Although yeah. you know, I have very strong IP opinions as well. You do, basically being that I would get rid of most of it. But um, Joe has, let's say, I would say more nuanced opinions, but um, yeah. but also a little bit more wrong sometimes. Oh, so okay. uh, yeah, look. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll let you guys decide where we take this thing as the experts, as the resident. But the thing is, both you and Anne have spent time in China. Anne was there for a whole year. So I feel like in terms of, of, you know, the wisdom of the Bartow, and I'm totally with you on on maximizing that, um, (laughs) I I feel like her China experience is is quite unlike most of the folks we've talked to or will talk to anytime (laughs) soon. So uh, and and Luna agrees, obviously. <laughs> um, and so let's. Uh, I do want to talk about the China stuff as well. Yeah. Well, Can look. we combine them? Can we talk about property, including IP, in China? Yeah, I, I mean that would be great because uh, that's that's one thing I've been struggling. I've been. Str- I have an art draft article that. It, and, and, okay, I'm sorry. Come on. No, it's, it's all right. It's unusual for me. I'm usually like a person who's like I write for a while, I get sick of it, and I want to get it out the door. A couple of things I never finished because I could never be happy with them, which I regret now. One of them involving uh, Native Americans and trademarks that I, I have a draft from 1997. I was never happy with. Of course, now if it was in print, I actually could be cited as this heats up finally. Um, so I always have great instincts about that. It's kind of a little data draft. But I just was never happy. I never. I needed a normative component, and I could never figure out what the answer was. And I felt like if I couldn't have a defensible answer. So moving that to China. Um, so I did publish one article. I, I have a lot of ideas and notes to write about China. And I wrote a, an essay basically for, it was published in the Ohio State Law Review last year, I guess, on um, online privacy in China, which, which I liked a lot. It was an interesting topic. But I have this draft article on IP, mostly copyright actually, in China, and I'm, I'm, I struggle with it. And so let me tell you a little bit why I struggle with it. And it gives, kind of paints a picture of what, what is really going on in China and what what is comprehensible to us, to your audience in China, is really hard. It's really hard to get a good handle on what's going on. And actually, uh, that actually is also a critique of the Chinese government, which is it's not really clear the China, how good a handle the Chinese government has on what's going on. And, and part of that is just a rule of law issue, right? I mean, yeah. how much is specified in advance and in what yeah. ways? And um, yeah. And this is a more general critique of the Chinese legal system, as you say, right? Yeah, right. That, that's what you write about in the piece that is already published. And, right, right, yeah. absolutely. 
yeah. and so what's the so what's what's the state of Chinese IP law, right? I mean, uh, so in terms of the treaties they're signed on to, if any, and, yeah. so, and so how things are protected. So it's 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 it actually parallels in some ways the privacy stuff, which is they have a ton of laws, and every time they identify a problem, uh, uh, different parts of the government, and and it's not only unified, and they don't always always unified, and they don't always consult with each other, because there's like bureaus and agencies, and you know all kinds of you know. There's just not one government. The government has so many components, right? The the provinces have their there's the provincial governments, and then there's just different people functioning at different levels. And they'll just pass laws, like the online privacy. I mean, there's an issue with consumer online privacy in China, and like six different laws got implemented, some of them internally inconsistent, um, but that got and it was really confusing about who would enforce them or how they would be enforced at the time they were implemented. And to this day, especially for an outsider, but even insiders uh, may have a hard time with that. Yeah, should we pause right there? Because that's one thing that I think certainly before I went to China, I, I taught a little component on comparative takings law and expropriation. Uh-huh. And uh, China was just one component of that. And I don't I, consider myself at all an expert in Chinese property law. I don't then again, I don't know if anybody is at this point, right. but but I'm right. certainly not. Uh, um, but I did conclude this. And one of the things that immediately comes up when you start to study Chinese law, I think of any kind, but certainly uh, property law, is that as much as you, you think of the power of the central government when you think of China, yeah. in fact, there is a incredible, there's an incredible amount of regional control, these kind yes. of regional governments and yes. uh, and I've, I don't have all the stuff in front of me, so I forget exactly how they're organized and what they're called in, in English. But um, there's an incredible amount of decentralization, but there's kind of authoritarianism at like every level, but it's, right. it, it can be really decentralized. And so what you just say about IP, you know, rings true that you, you don't just have one centralized authoritarian kind of IP regime, but you might have, you know, a particular region passing an IP law and, and, and right. is that, and then they can conflict. I, it seems counterintuitive to uh, probably a bunch of listeners who think of China as having a very strong centralized kind of party structure. Right. Uh, but in fact, they, you know, they have all kinds of problems, I guess, with regional. Is it, does that ring true to you? You it's, were there much true. longer. Yeah. It, no, it's absolutely true. And in intellectual property, it, it, it's, I mean, there's different courts, too. So what, what has happened a couple of times is like um, one court, like say maybe the court in, a court in Guangdong province recognizes um, – Company A to have rights to a trademark, and then maybe the court in Shanghai thinks that Company B should. And so there's not the same. Um, so what happens in that case? So usually there's a polit- my, my experience, at least what I know about it, there's usually a political solution that there'll be an appeal and then sort of a, a pressure to settle. That it's it's not there's not sort of this natural progression like when you have a circuit split in the U.S. and you know a lot of times if it's at least an important issue the Supreme Court will finally step in if it's an important circuit split in China the you have to look at the different levels of the courts and it's not even clear what the peer courts always are because the provinces may have different court structures and, and so is it like a a governmental version of what is it Guanxi is that the name for the that's uh, like relationships. Yeah. So, so is there yeah, is there like know, a guanxi between between governments that the central government kind of helps to foster, or do they mediate between these governments? I mean, when you say a political yeah. solution, I'm just wondering how that occurs. No, it'll be it'll be yeah, small p political, like not a, a rule, but basically the it'll be like an enforced settlement where well, so judges are the judiciary is not independent. You probably know that. So the judges are not independent, and I actually had students. The judges to get to be a judge. 
you just take an exam and you're a law student. And so and you have to score well enough. And you target certain judgeships, and some are more prestigious than others. And then once you're a judge, you can sometimes be promoted or appointed. But to actually sort of get to be a judge, so you might take a, if you want to be a family court judge, you know, there were family courts, uh, different things like that. There are some specialized IP courts in some provinces that sit some of the time. And that might be the court of first instance to hear a dispute. So like even when you go to file, it may not be clear where you should start. So you'll sort of be told you should start in XYZ court. And then um, there are panels. There's never just one judge. And junior judges are supposed to just sit there and they're told how to vote (laughs) by the panel chair. And then the panel chair, because that's like mentoring, here's how you should vote, here's what the right answer is. So you learn what the right answer is supposed to be. But the judges are never independent. So if they're political considerations, those are communicated to the judge. And when you say Can I not- ask some questions? Sure. No, um, no, you can't. Okay. <laughs> no, <laughs> I overrule ahead. you, Kristen. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Joe. Um, so uh, on the one hand, it sounds like you're saying that the judiciary is a civil service oriented uh, right. system. Right. Um, so that part's good. Merit, there's some merit to getting into being a judge, right? Yeah, and good or not, it's it's certainly not uncommon, right? There, right, in, right. in many nations, the judiciary is largely a civil service institution, not the sort of um, you know, bespoke craft made thing it is yeah. in the Anglo American tradition for right. senior lawyers. Um, right. So it's civil service. But when you say it's not independent, are you saying that um, that uh, China as a one party state, uh, the Communist Party of China, uh, that that it is it is a party backed institution in the sense yes. that it's not independent from the party. Right. They have to take their subservient constitutionally and in every sense of the word to the Communist Party, which, um, you know, has the the job of maintaining stability. And so, so, the, so the senior judge, let's say, in your panel yeah. uh, is going to be senior both by virtue of experience and presumably by virtue of having better navigated the party structure and be and doing better within the party. Right. They get promoted through the, whatever the channels are of judges. Right. Okay. Well, that that was my question too. So how how does the, how how does it, um, uh, how does the non-independence manifest is the basic question. So if you're a lower court judge, are you promoted by higher court judges? And eventually you go up that chain of promotion and you get to a party official who's more of a political operative or how, how does it work? Yeah, um, that's how it works, although you can apply to different to different situations. So when I did my Fulbright, I had a PhD, I had just like a seminar of PhD students. And to be on the China Supreme Court, you had to have a PhD. So some of the students wanted to be law professors, and that's why they were getting a PhD. And some of them wanted to be Supreme Court, or at least credentialed to be Supreme Court judges. At the China Supreme Court, it's like 300 members, so it's, it's very different. Mm. But it's still very elite. So that was the thing. So he was credentialed to be a Supreme Court, but then it, you would probably start at a lower court and then kind of apply. Although I guess probably some people go right to the Supreme Court. And some of them had experience. They'd come back for the PhD, so they did have some practice experience. When you say the Supreme Court, are we talking about a court that sits in Beijing that, that yeah, it's, plays it's, the coordination function of the U.S. Yeah, Supreme they, Court? Yeah, they're, the they're the court of final appeal. And... and 
is there always an appeal to them from any judicial rulings? No, no. And in fact, they're like jurisdictional entrepreneurs. And I'll give you a very compelling example outside intellectual property. So China is very, very aggressive with the death penalty, very aggressive with the death penalty. And those appeals would never usually make it past because you would have like a right of generally just you'd only get to hear twice. You'd have one appeal. So some local court would hear it and then some somewhat less local court would be the appeal and then the person would be very quickly put to death. And there's just all kinds of abuses, like really, really strong abuses with that, as you might imagine, could happen. So I started noticing, a friend of mine actually pointed it out, that you would actually read in the newspaper, which is controlled by the Chinese government, of innocent people have been put to death. And I thought that's really amazing that the government is reporting these mistakes were made. It's just unlike what I assume would happen in China, that something that significant, that severe, and that scary, for them to start reporting these, these executions of innocent people was just amazing, even though usually the details were sort of sparse. And then I found out the reason that these stories were getting out was that the Supreme Court wanted final jurisdiction in death penalty cases, at least some of the death penalty cases. So the only way to sort of move the views of the local courts was to get these stories out there, to Mm. sort of get popular support for the idea, because the local governments wanted to keep control. So it's a a very powerful political tool to be able to, you know, execute people. So the Supreme Court wanted to take this power away from them. So I don't know that the story, I, I believe the stories are true. You know, I don't think they're planting fake stories about this, but I think there's a lot more stories than are out there. But when I started reading those, I was, because they were so fast. I mean, I'm not, first of all, I don't believe in the death penalty, so I'll just get that out there. But I mean, what would happen is, so so here's one story that was reported. I could probably probably find you the story if you you wanted to see it. So what happened basically, as I remember it, I made a few details fuzzy, was there's two men who were just sort of, you know, frenemies, right? They lived in the same little town. They were kind of friends, but they kind of, they got increasingly antagonistic. And I guess one night they got drunk and had a brawl. They were punching each other. And then a few days later, one of the men disappeared. So his family decided the guy he had the fight with must have killed him and disposed of the body. So he was tried, he was convicted, and he was executed. And a week later, the guy came back. He'd gone to visit his family in another part of China. Oh, my. So the missing guy wasn't dead. Wow. And because they'd done it so, acted so quickly... Um, you know, so, so that was the story. And now, is there, when, when you, so is there no, when, when you say that the Chinese Supreme Court, which I guess yeah. is a, is a limited body that sits in Beijing, right? um, uh, that they want the opportunity for final jurisdiction. Is it that, that in fact, the regional courts, which, you know, have, I guess the equivalent of like a trial court maybe, but with a panel and uh-huh. this and a, and a limited system of appeals, uh, is it that they have final jurisdiction or is it that after the ruling of a regional court, the execution tends to follow so quickly that there's not the opportunity? Is, is there even a theoretical possibility in every case to petition to be heard by the Chinese Supreme Court? I'm wondering what the nature of the jurisdictional differences yeah. you know well my understanding is that they wanted to they want every death penalty before there's an execution they want sort of a chance to to um uh weigh in to review stuff 
And it may be that they just affirm whatever's going on, but I think, but there's like, you know, political element too, right? Like if some local sort of burgermeister or whatever in China is executing all his enemies, they want to be able to sort of, within the realm of acting within the law, have a heads up and be able to step in or, you know, point it out to people that needs, there needs to be a, an opportunity to step in. So um, the the point that Christian raised before about um, about regionalism right. and and I guess, in a sense, an, an American ear would hear that as federalism, uh, right. that, that concept. Right. It sounds like there's, uh, and, the, and the thing you just described with the Supreme Court of China and the, and the person's hypothesis about what was going on here with the, right. using the press as right. a way to generate a, pop, a change support. of popular sentiment that yeah. might support a rearrangement of the, the authority uh, between right. the Supreme Court and the regional courts on death penalty right. stuff. Right. All this stuff. It sounds like a big problem or a big challenge of the Chinese legal system is just given the given the geographic scope of the country and the massive population of the country uh, that, you know, figuring out even in a one party state how to manage local control, regional control and central national control is a really, really tough set of challenges to figure out. Yes, yes, it is. Even yeah. even in a context where you might think that a single single party rule would give the most centrally located authorities the whip hand on on all these things, it turns out it's harder to do that in practice. Maybe. Yeah. No. There's this expression that's used a lot in China: the mountains are high and the emperor is very far away. And for you know local the local province provincial governments can have a lot of power. That's kind of you know the whole Boshalai stuff was basically that, you know, Bo Shalai was in, you know, he was in Sichuan province, and he became incredibly powerful and was doing a lot of stuff. He was trying to set himself up. I, I think it's widely understood to become part of the, the um, governing committee that's like seven people, the sort of top committee. And, uh, he, you know, he was he used with the guise of the anti-corruption campaign to maybe, as, as I understand from what I read, it's not really that clear to anybody, uh, but under the guise of being anti-corrupt, he was actually very corrupt. He would go after people for corruption who were his enemies or standing up for in his way or something along those lines. And he was doing that to leverage himself higher into the central government to be back in uh, back in Beijing. Uh, but supposedly, he just he just guessed wrong in terms of how things were going to play out. And there's, as I, I think I mentioned in the Ohio State article on privacy, that there um, he was he may have been like phone tapping. Bo Shalai, you know, or Li Keqiang, the um, prime minister, that he may have been surveilling them, and that was really where they said, that's it, that's too far, you can't get away with that, and then brought him down. So it's, the bigger, the bigger picture is that it's really hard to have a good understanding of what's going on, you can only kind of watch little pieces of it and try to understand pieces at a time, and so intellectual property even is is, uh, you know, what's going on with trademarks versus what's going on with copyrights and what versus what's going on with patents. And even then you kind of want to break it down um, to try to understand. Sometimes all you can understand is what's going on with patents in Shanghai, mm. you know, something that specific, because there are specialized patent courts that have, are fairly recent development. And on the one hand, people are very excited about it, just like some people were very excited about here about the establishment of the federal circuit because finally you'd have, if nothing else, judges who understood patents, right? That they, they would have a real expertise in patents, and that would be a good thing. So China's experimenting with those, but they're not in every province. And 
um, you know, how you get a case there is not at all clear. I don't think it's it's not even necessarily clear to all the lawyers that I've talked to there. It's definitely not clear to me how you get your case into the one of the specialized patent courses, courts versus another court, uh, because just having a patent dispute is not enough. And, and why, why did they, why, two questions, why did they set these up? And then secondly, you know, if you're an American and you have some IP, maybe, maybe you, maybe you're a movie producer or something like right. that. And you, and you're walking down the streets of Shanghai and you see all these bootlegs right. and, and maybe you, you find out there's one supplier of a bunch of these bootlegs. And so you want to uh-huh. take them to court, uh, right. uh, for copyright. Um, yes. And you can't get jurisdiction in the states or in some other place because yeah. they're purely domestic or whatever. So how how do you um uh, and they have no assets outside of China uh-huh. or something. So how, yeah. first of all, you know what do you do? And is the and is the move towards specialized courts a response to some international pressure? Help me yes. figure this out. Yeah, it's a response to international pressure to look like something is being done. And China, the central government is, is very empirical. Like they collect a lot of data, they look at data. So like the empirically based sort of aspect of the courts is they're being criticized for not, um, let's say patents, protecting patents enough. So they just responded by increasing funding, increasing judges, increasing courts, having specialized courts, and there are more cases. So they can point to that and say, look, we're taking this very seriously, here are more cases. Now, they report periodically there'll be um, an article. So while I was teaching, there was an article in the uh, local news, an English language article that I found, which was um, that reported that out of all the patent cases, I think it was, uh, I think it was restricted to patent cases, not just intellectual property, that 70% of them were won by foreigners. Like that was the headline. 70% were being won by foreigners. And my stu- a couple of my students was just very angry. She's like, that's, you know, I think the courts are biased, you know, China's courts are biased in favor of foreigners. That's not right, so on and so on. And so I asked her, well, could you verify this number? Like, is there a way to go into a database and say, in this last year, here's, here's the case, here's, here's 100 cases. Can we just, like, figure out who the parties are and figure out and just verify that 70% were, you know, foreigners were winning? And she basically said no. And I talked to the faculty at the law school where I was teaching, and they basically said, no, there's, like, no way to figure out, like, it may be a true number, maybe a made-up number, but even if it's a true number, there's no place where lawyers get the data, like, where you could actually study what's really going on, so it's not verifiable. But everyone kind of agrees there's, like, more activity with patents going on, right? And if that's a true number, if... Foreigners are disproportionately winning these cases where, you know, I don't know if they're, maybe that's because they're mostly plaintiffs, I I don't know, but if that's really happening, then that's sort of China's answer. Look, you told us to, you know, create a structure within our legal system where you could enforce patents more, and we did that, so now be happy. Now, is that is that regime, is it a distinctively Chinese regime, it's totally domestic law, or is the domestic law, the, the, the cause of action that you would bring as a foreigner, uh, obviously, you know, it's it's the law of, in China, but right, is is right. it the result of uh, is it the result of implementing a treaty obligation? Is it the result of implementing <laughs> something in response to pressure, or what? Yeah, starting in around two thousand two thousand and one, China passed a lot of kind of Western style IP statutes. So that part was easy, figuring out how they're going to be enforced, and to this day, figuring out how they're enforced is the confusing part. But patterns somewhat on the U.S. And, and, and a lot on Germany's laws, actually. They have patent, copyright, and trademark statutes that look very familiar. 
Now that's a you know civil law country, so more of a civil law approach um, to enforcing that, where the judge you know has all the facts, knows what the law is, and is supposed to come up with an opinion, like was there infringement or who owns what or you know whatever the question may be. The patent stuff, uh, for example, um, so what would happen in a patent situation might be someone might want to manufacture. They may have a patent for a widget. They may go to China and figure out how they can use Chinese workers and Chinese factories to manufacture the widget. But the next thing they know, other Chinese companies are also making widgets, even though they have you know, the patent protection on their widget. So what do you do? So that's the kind of case that might wind up in the court. Uh, like I said, but then at the same time, you have a political situation. So which Chinese companies are making the widgets, right? And if um, if it's a successful company with well-connected people running the company, then your odds of getting a, a positive outcome might not be very good. Or even if you get it, it's not always clear that anyone in the Chinese government will help you enforce it. It's not like you can you know, privately seize the factory or find any assets to seize. So why does... Um, this uh, this all sounds very paradoxical to me yeah. um, in, in the or or at least very confusing. Um, yes, it so is. so it's just taking a very, very broad brush of a very 50,000 foot level. Yeah. So it seems like China wants there to be uh, for its own development purposes. It right. wants there to be a lot of inflow of Western and and uh, and just world capital. Right. right. It, right. it wants money flowing in to invest in China. Right. Um, what makes people who own lots of resources comfortable doing that? And it seems um, to me yeah. predictability about when there's a dispute with another about how to divide the spoils of my investment, that uh-huh. there will be some ability to predict roughly how that will all shake out. Uh, and yeah. and you, you've been describing lots of ways in which that isn't the case, right? That it's right. it's hard to know, people guess wrong, suddenly you're in prison, blah, blah, blah. So yeah. that sounds to me like a terrible place, just being very crude and untutored yeah, yeah, and yeah. not really understanding much of this. That sounds like a terrible place to put my resources. Well, it's a it's a it's a risky place to put somewhat risky place to put your resources. So what you'd want to do, you, you just really need to know what you're dealing with, sort of understand the situation. And you partner. So you partner with Chinese companies would be the way to go. And if you guess correctly, a well connected Chinese company, then you can probably make a lot of money. So it's right? the, the, sh- the old cliche about high risk, high reward. Yeah, kind of. And and it's gonna differ too, like um you might worry about your patent being infringed, but if it's being infringed, like just let's say a self, some kind of cell phone situation. Let's say you're a big cell phone company. You're going, to, you're making this, having the cell phones made in China, and then suddenly some there's knockoffs in China. If your market was never China, then you maybe don't worry about it too much, right? Like if yeah, you, because you just wanted the handsets to be brought to whatever right. country you were selling them in, you know, France, U.S., whatever, right. Canada. As long as you're being able to sell them there, who cares that there's a knockoff in China? Exactly. Now, where it gets complicated, so right now, Apple's biggest market is in China because there are a lot of, there's a lot of money in China. There's a lot of people with disposable income, and they will wait in line to buy the newest you know, iPhone upgrade, and they will pay more than we pay in the U.S. They're actually cheaper here. Um, even in real, you know, dollars, whatever, however you want to calculate it, they're a lot of money. A lot of technological problems for different reasons are cheaper here than they are in China, but people are still buying them. So the issue there is whether you have authenticity. 
So counterfeiting is just a big issue there, right? Because people who want to have an apple but they don't want to spend the money can very easily buy a, a phone that says apple and looks like an apple and functions like an apple but isn't an apple. So that's one of the things I never really figured out is like, how, what is the, I mean, why do enough people want the authentic item that Apple, that they're big, Apple's biggest market? And they are. And then on the other hand, like, it didn't seem like Apple was too worried. I traveled all over China, and everywhere I went, I saw an Apple store. At that time, there was only one authorized Apple store, right? <laughs> yeah. That was in Shanghai. So, and I had an apple. I took, um, I, I bought a, I brought with me and I got the cheapest apple I could find, Apple Fun, an i4. And I brought it with me to China because it was easier. I had a, um, I can't even remember what phone I brought with me that I struggled with. So I, I got the, and I just, I just cracked like some, some, somebody at a little kiosk showed me how to open it up and make it so I could use it on, you know, China Mobile and a chip. And just basically it was unlocked, just unlocked it for me. Uh, for like five dollars, and I used my my phone. Um, there was a lot of pickpocketing that went on. It was really um, one of my students. In fact, the student I hired to tutor me to teach me Chinese had some fairly inexpensive Nokia phone. But for her, as a student without income, it was a big investment, and it was stolen right out of her knapsack. And so I just forwarded her wage, like I was paying her to, to to tutor me. So I just gave her all her wages in advance, so she would have enough money. To go and buy a phone, and for her to get an apple was just like a, a huge deal and a huge undertaking. Like all her friends went with her, and like <laughs> cultural significant. It was like buying a car right. for college students to get the Apple phone. So I was curious about that. Why she didn't just get another Nokia, which had been perfectly serviceable? Um, but you know, she's a law student now, kind of moving up in the world. And well, I think I mean one answer to that is uh, that it's a computer, right? And um, and it's a better computer than than many Chinese people had before um, before they had the phone, right? Is it, there are a lot of places where the, where the, the uh, and I don't know. This is China is such a diverse place, right? Yes, and, yes, it and is. So it's just making generalizations about China is just fraught with trouble. Right. Um, right. But but you know, and but you can look at other places, whether it's um, Africa or or other parts of Asia, where the kind of having a home PC that you know there were there were internet cafes maybe, but but that that whole generation's been kind of skipped. And people now have very powerful computers uh, in their pockets. Um, so oh, no. I, yeah, no, I agree with you. But what I didn't, I mean, like you could, you could just get, there's, I'm trying to remember the, the name of, there's a, China, there's, it's the equivalent of a Nokia, but there's a, a Chinese company. That, Sh- Xiaomi. Xiaomi. Xiaomi, right. Yeah. Why would you get an Apple if you could go to Xiaomi that did everything you wanted it to? Well, That's what I don't understand because I just don't have that mindset, I guess. And if the the mindset is you must have the trademark value, to, you know, the prestige of owning an Apple phone. But if the counterfeits are so dominant, well, how does the trademark have any value at all? Well, I don't know. I mean, right? That's a great question. I mean, right? I think that, and yet the brands are so important, not just in the phone where functionality is an issue, but just you know other kind of consumer goods. I mean, there, there are two kinds of things going on here. One is that the counterfeits, especially the ones, uh, the, the, ear, the early Xiaomi phones, uh, right. they just aren't very good. I mean, they, they, you know, they, some of the software looks very similar, but uh-huh. they don't work all that well. And especially, you know, they're a lot you, better now, though. They, they are better. I mean, I still think it's just there would be a you'd, you'd have if, if you could choose either one, like nobody would choose the Xiaomi over the Apple phone that it's clearly copying. Right. I mean, right. if you could choose either one, but it's a lot cheaper. Right. The, the other thing. Right. Yeah. So if you could spend little but have it look like an Apple. 
but you know, at least do all the functions that you need. I guess that's the market that all the Apple, not you know, the counterfeit Apple stores I saw everywhere. Right. Are serving. Well, that's kind of the complicating factor because in China, and there, I've heard discussion about this with the new with the new watch, which is going to be in, incredibly popular in China, and in particular the gold watch. Right. So the gold watch is going to be what was it? Is it ten thousand dollars where it starts here? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in China, it may actually go for more. Yeah. And you know, among I don't know among kind of tech tech people like nobody would buy the gold watch i mean there's just very few people who are especially people in our circles and and others um partly because you'd be you know at least i would be embarrassed to wear it you know i mean because you know like you know your base you're paying for this gold you know it's it's not any better and and so it's almost obvious how much you're buying into conspicuous consumption when you're wearing the gold watch right because it because everybody, you and everybody else knows that it does no more than the much cheaper phone and that you've basically sunk a bunch of money into yeah. having the gold watch, right? Um, however, that is reversed in China where there's not this uh, – and again, I'm making a generalization. It's diff- But these phones, these kinds of things sell much better in China where displaying wealth and status, there, there's not this norm against it, at least in a lot of places. Right, um, that's changing a little bit among government officials. <laughs> because because yeah. I mean when someone wants to crack down, that's what they that's one of the things that when, when one of your enemies needs like sort of a, something to use against you, assuming that it's not mutually assured destruction, uh, showing pictures of uh, actually there was a judge in Shanghai that lost I think I don't know what happened to him. I think he was arrested and maybe executed. Uh, but he was a judge, so they knew what his salary was and he had like six million dollars worth of assets and and it didn't add up right i mean there was no way he could have acquired all that stuff and it started out because he was wearing some really expensive rolex and then he was i think he got busted hiring prostitutes i don't know you know for some party and then they saw his watch and then they found out that he owned all this real estate and that he had all these cars and none of it made any sense based on his salary um so that that sort of uh xi jinping sort of going after corruption that's actually apparently reduced demand for luxury items. Well, I was I was just going to ask because I'm going to try to understand the the Chinese approach a little bit better. To yeah. to the extent that there's any truth to that generalization about, especially business people in China and others trying to you know not having a norm against showing status. It, right. it would seem like the pe- they're also the people who are most likely to affect the implementation and the uh, the felt experience of the law to the extent okay. the law doesn't have a a core identity before it's actually expressed uh um that that there would be a move toward stronger trademark and consumer protection laws right because of, in a world awash with counterfeits and, and 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 knockoffs um that the status of having a rolex is just you know like you know you see everybody's got something which looks like a rolex <laughs> you know and, and right. so it's hard to show your 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 bona fides without having a, a genuine rolex and for that you need strong um uh, strong trademark type regimes. And I'm wondering about, so I'm wondering about that. I'm also yeah. wondering about uh, Chinese patent law and whether you, and we t- you talked about how there's uh, you know, it's a pro- there's a problematic implementation. You don't know right. which court to go to, et cetera. Now, of course the U S in my view does not have a very good patent system at all. And uh, we have similar kinds of problems with, with charting out the boundaries of various ideas through, uh-huh. through patent law. Um, so I'm, I'm just curious whether, as a maybe as a as a small point, um, do they have software patents in China, for example? Yeah, there's, there's actually there's the the Chinese government. I mean, there's a lot of well, first of all, there's a lot of people in China, and there's a lot of smart people in China, a lot of smart, educated people in China doing computer work. So innovation happens there, and stuff is patented, and they've been in, increasing funding for innovation 
and uh, the number of patents. So that part, you know, do you think that's a good thing? Those are all kind of chugging along and people successfully exploit those patents. Well, let me let me interrupt you for just a second because okay. I, I actually think that's a bad thing. And, and, and it would be my prediction would be that in a in a nation which is uh, not an incumbent in technological leadership, you know, at least in IP related things um, uh, here, I mean, Internet. IT related. So, uh, you know, whether it's Twitter or any other Amazon, you know, so the U S is the, is in the incumbent position and in other places in Europe, China is not, but there's, as you say, there are a bunch of smart people there who are building out either Chinese equivalents to those things or new kinds of, of things in China. Uh-huh. And I would think that a non-incumbent, um, nation would not be interested in strong software patent protection, which mainly because of, you know, patent trolls and everything else mainly serve to give incumbent businesses a, an advantage because you because you just can't write a piece of software without violating a bunch of software patents. It's just not possible. And so what you need to do is build up a war chest of patents and be big enough, right? So anyway, my it, it, my empirical my my hypothesis would be that empirically you would you would find that there would be even if there look like look like there are strong software patent protections in China that they in fact would be very very weak. Okay, well, you've made the jump from patent protection to strong patent protection, which is not necessarily the same thing. But if most people are not trying to enforce their software patents in China, which they're not, then patents can actually be pretty valuable in China. Like if somebody writes a patent, uh, you know, for for some software patent, which maybe violates only patents in other countries, not Chinese patents, and those folks don't try to enforce them there because they think it's kind of pointless then you have a patent that's actually pretty powerful and pretty useful to you in China. So, Wait, so how, I, how is it useful? I'm, what's the mechanism? Against other Chinese people. And, and you can enforce it domestically. You have a pa- if you have a patent that no one challenges from another country that you can enforce against other software companies or people who want to make phones or whatever it is, then you can make a lot of money with your patent or you can get licensing fees, whatever. And, and does that actually, it seems kind of weird. I mean, I'm wondering if that, how often that happens and if anybody's looking. Yeah. I don't know anything. That's the thing. <laughs> I, I'm not sure anyone knows. I mean, really, I don't know. I mean, in the U.S., we don't know really how valuable patents are, right? Because most of that information about the licensing fees is not available to us. Right. So we know. But, there's a, but there's a background China. of, but we, we can make some assumptions about value and the the way things likely play out because there's enough of a again a, enough of a depersonalized predictable rule of law quality to things uh-huh. that people can you know make rough estimates about how things will unfold if i if i take these steps and i and i and i use them in this way uh, roughly this will happen um, and the way we're, the way, this is a very frustrating conversation for me, I'm realizing because I've never been there. Right. Uh, and I, so I just have no reference for, it sounds like you guys are talking about a foreign planet <laughs> where nothing yeah. is the same, like the rules of physics may be different, like right. <laughs> nothing's the same here in this right. place. So nothing, right. so talking about patents, uh, you might as well be talking about uh, something completely unrelated to what any of the concepts well, I said, are I, just, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I think that, like, okay, so China's been investing a lot in the aerospace industry. So I think, realistically, there are Chinese inventors who are coming up with new things related to planes, uh, flying, uh, engines, whatever, components, and patenting them and uh, selling stuff to 
corporations in other countries, and part of the value of the invention is is the patent, right? That they can't make the same thing without violating the patent, and that there's you know money to pay for lawyers if a company if Boeing is in, 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 uh, infringing the patent, China that company has enough money to enforce its patent rights in the U.S. Certainly, it's going to have a huge advantage in China if it needed to enforce its patent rights there, and they're making money. So I think that um, proportionate to the size of the country, it, it's not doing as much, but I think it is, it is behaving like other industrialized countries with patents, for better or for worse. I, I'd go further on, on, the U, on the U.S. end, because I don't know that I agree with Joe that, that, that there's anything like the rule of law which characterizes the practice of patent in the United States. And in fact, the, I think the the practical experience of people working in let's just take software because that's the easiest one. Uh, uh, well, it, for it's my the case, easiest one for your argument. For, for yeah. my argument, yeah. I mean <laughs> that that uh, in, in in software, um, your your ability to do things it does not is not predictable according to some rule of law, right? It's just it just isn't. I mean, you're held up by software patent trolls. Uh, if you work for a big company, it has to do with the balance of power between those companies and whether they want to engage in mutually assured destruction. I mean, there's no rule of law which can y- y- where you can say, oh, all I have to do is look in this database and and avoid these properties. I just do a title search and and make sure I'm not in front. Like, right. So is is it so different, you think, Joe, in, in China? I mean, or, or are you not? I don't know. You know what I mean? I, 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 yeah, there, I do. Is, I mean, you're making a you make a you make a great point. Um, and um, I guess I'm the the challenge for me as someone trying to think about this is I don't have any real point of reference on the on the other side of the equation. And so right. if you're asking or comparison, um, you've been there, um, you have some experience that can relate to things uh, and spent a year there and has a experience that can relate to things. Um and in many ways, what you're describing sounds very human and common and very universal, right? There are people with power and people without it. There are people with right. resources and people without it. Right. Um, and of course, whether you have power or not, or resources or not, uh, you're trying to do best by yourself and yours, and you're just trying to make it through the day right. in some sense. Like right. that all sounds very much like what I understand human life to be about everywhere. Um, but uh, but the other like what what is law what role can law play how do these institutions how are they arranged um it sounds like there's just an enormous amount of chaos uh yes. in in what you're describing well you know I, I, chaos might be too strong a word I, I, in some ways i think things function they just function in a very different way Okay. Like, I, I don't understand the Chinese patent system, but I mean, there are all these courts and they're hearing cases and they're reaching verdicts somehow. And people are still getting, people still think it's worth applying for patents there and trying to enforce them in the court. So there's some, some structure, right, just like they are here that seems kind of irrational sometimes. So there's some kind of center that, that works for patents over there. And um, like I said, China's been trying really hard. They've been trying to ramp up innovation and you know they do I, I think there's a lot of stuff that goes on i use wechat do you know what wechat is nope okay so wechat's just basically a it's a messaging application on my phone and it's um it's a little bit like twitter but it's like micro twitter in some ways like you can you can send a wechat post to everyone on your list 
you can actually send it to strangers. It, it has all these functions I don't use. Like, it'll tell you if there are other people on WeChat around you. Like, one's 10 foot away, you know. So you use it here? Yeah, I use it here to keep in touch with my Chinese friends. Even oh. my Chinese friends here. Because they all use it. Okay. And so, it's just, it's just text you can text. And then you can, the popular functions, you record your voice, which I don't, I don't know if people do that on some other function that I don't know about. So what might happen is I'll just record, good morning, Sophie, how are you? And then I send that to Sophie. And then when she listens, my voice comes over and says, good morning, Sophie, how are you? And then she'll record, I'm fine, Anne, how are you? So it adds like that level of, so for people, so with people with like literacy issues, Oh. Or just, it's so much harder to, I mean, like the Chinese characters, <laughs> all those, you know, that's because typing in Chinese is just a much slower process than English because you'll you'll have a, a letters and then well, every time you want to, so like you just a word like shit, S-H-I, can have just a bazillion different meanings. And you, you, orally, you'll know from, from context, but writing... What'll happen is you put you could put sh in the, on your computer, and then it might give you ten characters to choose from, and you pick the character that has the meaning of the word sh that you want. So it's just more complicated and time consuming. It just takes longer to type because you could never have a you could never have a keyboard with all the Chinese characters, right? There's just thousands of characters. So so anyway, because of all that, WeChat when you just speak and send it back and forth, it's just a lot faster. So, but you can also do text, text, right? Little short phrases and, and send pictures. And uh, there's a convention. In fact, my, at, at certain holidays, I hear from a lot of my Chinese students. Like they always like, even though it's, they have a different new year for the, for the U.S. new year, I usually hear from them. They wish me a happy new year, and, uh, which I think is very sweet. Um, so WeChat's great for that. And they'll send, you know, pictures of, of themselves or pictures of where they are. Uh, things like that. So WeChat is the company Tencent, which is a really big, um, I don't want to call it an internet company, but it's, it's, it's like the Facebook of China. And it's weird because I hear people sometimes railing against how China's not innovative, but I think, sure it is. I mean, you know, WeChat, that's pretty cool. Uh, WeChat is how we know a lot more about China than we used to before because people on WeChat, WeChat's really, really hard to censor. Yeah. And so they, they, and they have a number of, a few. yeah, I mean, you look at China's and, and I'm not, I think it's changing all the time. And so yeah. the minute you try to have an opinion about it, you know, you, you have, it's clear you haven't been there in a year or something like that, right? Or two years. Or but you're they, just in a different neighborhood or a different city or yeah. you're talking to a different person. See, this is the problem with the article I'm trying to write is I had some people read it and they said, well, it reads too much like a travel log because I'm describing, well, I had this experience in this city and talked to this person. And I don't know how else I'm going to do it. Because even if I cite to stuff, this, a lot of the law review articles about China are just crap. Well, it's not well written and there's no basis or not sourced. Well, it, you know, to the extent that the law, you know, is, is very much about accommodations between competing interests and it's kind of, you know, ersatz, you know, it's just kind of, if not totally made up on the spot to solve a particular problem, it, it's highly adaptable to, to solving a problem. And so there's right. more of a mediation model. Then all that like local contextual stuff matters or or temporally contingent stuff matters like, you know, and then this is true, like in any culture, right? I mean, the, the, the pressure on technology is going to be towards solving problems that people have. Right. And the more diverse your culture and the bigger it is and the more economically diverse, you would expect a kind of more diverse landscape to the extent you're more authoritarian. You might have some concerns. Yeah, so there's going to be a Chinese version of this, a Chinese version of that. But then there may right. also be 
Chinese things which aren't versions of things that we have over here to solve particular kinds of problems. And the basic question with IP, it seems to me, is um, is are the laws which constitute our intellectual property laws in any particular place, are those changing in any way the landscape? Uh, Are they either for good or for bad? In other words, are, are we actually meeting those needs better because of IP law? Or are we not meeting them as well as we could have? In other words, they're giant opportunity costs. Or is the landscape going to be whatever it is and the function of IP law is basically to move money around? Like who, basically who gets paid for this landscape, which is inevitable. Right. And I don't really know the – you know I don't, I don't know how it works in, in China. It, it seems to me in the United States that, um, that IP serves a, has a highly deleterious effect in copyright, um, probably also in patent, although in patent I wonder if it really has – that much of an effect other than to make, um, you know, other than just to move money around uh, to different pockets. But, um, but again, you guys are the experts on this. You should be telling me. And, and in terms of Joe, like, you know, we've been, like, I, I was there for a few weeks and was there for a year. I bet Anne would be the first to say. Times, I'm in fact going back. Uh, uh, I'm be back in June. But I, I bet you would be the first to say too, that um, having been there gives you a perspective. And I, I guess you do you know, you gain some insight, but it's changing right. so fast. And so, and it's such a big country and there's so many different, like to say something, you know, to say something definitive about what's going on in China is probably not possible. <laughs> no, you, you know? can do a few, I mean, you could say a few things like, yeah. like just to take copyright. So uh, they passed that their first copyright law was I think 2001. So not that long ago. And there, they, there's a second version, and I think there's a third version going around that they've actually changed the law because the law has some meaning for some players. So there's pressure to change it. So when I was there, there was a draft copy, a draft amendments to their copyright law uh, for musicians. It was the musicians that had issues. So musicians mostly only get paid with um, basically like, um, well, they get paid for performances. And then sort of royalties, like if their songs played in a certain context, that's how they get paid. So they were very, they didn't like the first version of the copyright law. They wanted law that protected um, musicians better, um, composers, but it was actually sound, sound performers. Mm. Who, so they tried to amend the law uh, in ways that would make like bigger streams of revenue go to the musicians because musicians do not sell, like they don't sell on iTunes. Like, this, that, that doesn't happen for Chinese recording artists. Like, everyone just manages to get the songs for free. Nobody pays 99 cents for a song. So you'll have, you'll have sites where you can download a song for free and there's advertising, and that revenue goes to the recording artist. But the recording artist wanted money, like, if a nightclub is, or, you know, karaoke, big karaoke chain or something is using their song... They wanted money, so that's why they were they're basically amending the copyright law to try to find a way to get more money to musicians. So I mean, you know, you could agree with that or disagree with that, but the article, sort of the thesis of my article is actually, believe it or not, and I, I don't think I'm actually being inconsistent, but is that maybe believe it or not, China could use some more copyright if you look at the level of cultural production. The level of cultural production for the most populous country in the world is actually just incredibly low and it's not ip is not the only problem right the censorship and the climate there's the big problem but copyright plays a role 
So just in terms of like number of books written, songs written, songs performed, movies, oh my God, just the topic of movies alone, why there's so few Chinese movies that are commercially successful, even in China, uh, no less in other countries. Um, again, politics have, has a huge role in that, but IP actually has a role in that. And it may be that at least some of the time in some limited contexts, a little more copyright might lead to more cultural production. And how, how would you study that? So, I mean, you can't, I mean, I can't, this is the thing. So I can just kind of lay this out and then just like tell a bunch of anecdotes and sort of theorize why I think uh, this could be true. But so, uh, so you have to, uh, movies is actually my best example. Well, but it's, even then you have the politics. So you can't, there's only a limited number of foreign films that are allowed into China for theatrical release. I forget what it is. It's like 27. It's a very small number. And there's a culture in China that people like to go to the movies. So even though they can download any movie they want for free, I mean, you can find or buy the DVD for like pennies of any movie they want anytime. It's like the movie equivalent of the Celestial Jukebox. They like to go out to the theater. So when I was there, Men in Black 3 was released. And there were like lines around the block to pay very, the tickets were expensive, to pay to go see because it was like this cultural event because it was one of, you know, a few movies that was going to be released that year. I, I feel like I feel like we should start there and figure out what, you know, what the problem with China is that <laughs> that they're lining up for Men in Black 3 like that. Because they don't get to see many movies. <laughs> see, but also to see it, I mean, it's different to watch it on your phone than of it course. is to be in a theater with a hey, stop, Luna. In a theater with your friends, <laughs> state-of-the-art sound and special effects, maybe 3D. Yeah. Uh, that kind of stuff. I'm trying to think of the other movies. The movie Cars was there when I was there. That one wasn't as popular um, because it's the I don't know why it just wasn't. But Men in Black Three was just wildly popular when I was there. Um, my so a group of my students took. I went to the movie theater only once, and a group of my students took me, and they had to find a movie that had subtitles, the English subtitles. You know, to be considerate to me, so I'd have a, a clue even what was going on because the Chinese versions of White Men and Black are dubbed. So mm. they found this movie, it was called The Great Wall, and it was starring some people that are kind of actors that are kind of famous in China. And even though I missed some stuff, it was like it was a dog. I, even I could tell it was a dog. And we got there, and we were the only people in the theater. Mm-hmm. There was like a line around the block for Men in Black, we were the only three, the only group of people. Um, in the theater three, whatever, seeing uh, the Great Wall, and it was because it was a Chinese produced movie, and the government is very controlling over who gets to be in the movies, what the script says. They don't, you know, they don't necessarily allow a lot of artistic freedom. I think some decent Chinese movies, even under those situations, get made, but a lot of really bad ones do. And that was the only time I saw empty seats. Like I never in China, every bus I was on, every train, every plane, every seat's filled. Like it's, yeah. I mean, everything's always a capacity, except over capacity. So we're. Sa- I don't understand this. Is, I don't understand the copyright problem. So you're saying that because people don't, because individuals. I'm saying that if you could make a movie in China, the the only way you can make a movie legally in China at this point is you need the permission of the Chinese government. If you could make a movie in China where you could distribute it and get like a dollar for a download. That would get you the ability to at least maybe break away. You'd still have the controls of the government, but you wouldn't rely on the funding from the government. So there might be just a little more sort of creative output. The same with books. So like, if you want to if you want to publish a book and get an ISBN number, then you have to go through all kinds of levels of government approval. 
There are a couple of authors in China, supposedly, it's not verifiable, who worked around that and were able to sell books, right, and get mo- and get money, but not a lot of books because once a few copies were out, then they were knocked off. So if there was like more copyright, there might be more money, more pools of money for people who are writing books that were kind of outside the government distribution, government approval. I don't know. I may be wrong about that. But it sounds like the problem is the problem of government control being a block rather than in a, a, a lack of an adequate incentive that comes from people knowing that if they do well, they'll be copied. It sounds like that that might be a problem that's third or fourth down on the list. No, no, absolutely right. You're absolutely, it's not the main problem. But when I think about ways to sort of get into spaces between the government and something that the government's going to object to, that there are some, there's a little space between those things uh, in terms of a book, you know, a, a, a movie that you produce, whatever. Uh, there's no way to monetize them because they just either... Either they go into government distribution, where at least you have a chance in China of having your copyright enforced, or they're outside the government distribution channel, you couldn't go to court, even if you wanted to. So you would have to depend sort of on the goodwill of people paying for stuff they could get for free, and it doesn't seem to happen a lot. Wow. I think that's... <laughs> so it's not like more copyright alone is the solution, but it's like <laughs> the way you even get copyright, you've already submitted to so many levels of censorship... Yeah, it's, so it's, it's weird, it's, right? Because where you actually, where people, we could actually, you know, at a reasonable, if we somehow get a return, I don't know. I, I mean, I really, the argument struggle with because because copyright is government censorship, right? And uh, at private behest, so it's this is like moving the censorship around in a way. To, what you're describing is like, yeah, uh, you know, if we censored the right things for the right reasons, uh, they would get a slightly better result. Um, I don't know. We're, we're no, not going to resolve this now. Say, okay, what do you know? No, no. But when you say it's government censorship in the U.S., it isn't. Uh, the government doesn't say if we don't like the political whatever of your book, we're not giving you an ISBN number, and you can't go to court to enforce copyright. I mean, that's what I wouldn't be too glib about. You know what I mean? It's a re- I hate the word censorship because something else is. is ha- I mean, I understand your point in context right. in the U.S., but I mean, to talk about books being censored in the U.S. just might mean oh, they're not in a school library, which I'm not saying is a great thing. But I mean, in China, for something to be censored, we're like, you're going to prison if you're caught with a copy of the book. Oh, sure. And Although, you know, there are criminal penalties books. in the U.S. I mean, they, they, you know, they're basically, you know, copyright is a is a prohibition on speaking in certain ways. And, oh, sure. But okay. it's not, you know, we think of it as not like thought control because the government right. doesn't have a, like a content-based reason for doing. In fact, it, right. it, it acknowledges that we're suffering a harm uh, by granting a copyright, but we think it'll have, you know, positive kind of expression results right. in the end and uh um yeah so that's getting that you know that's that's not the same notion as like we were um well i don't know we're not going to get through it all right now are we joe no no and it, but you see what i'm struggling with yeah to even coherent like i have to explain so many things before what i'm saying makes any sense at all you, yeah no I, I, there's and, a, and the idea that i'm champion copyright is like it has to, it's only very contextual because i'm a very low barriers person generally but just when I think about the situation in China, the idea is if there was a way to actually get money from consumers, you could actually get some space from censorship. I mean, you're dealing with a, a situation where there's a, 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a really hard theoretical picture here about like what the right in, in an ideal environment, what would be the right level of incentive, et cetera, et cetera. But you're also dealing with a place where the the um, uh, the day to day lived experience of the people, you know, living there is is very different than here. And they you know, a lot of stuff is kind of made up as you go along. Right. A lot of it is about accommodation. Right. So predicting, you know, the, the copyright idea about temporary monopolies is based on a prediction of how people will behave under a regime with that kind of property. And those predictions get to be very, very hard to make when you don't know how the cases will come out, when you don't know how disputes will be resolved because they're going to be resolved in an accommodated kind of way. Um, so I, that's, I, it sounds like a really interesting project. Um, yeah, but, but one I'm about which, like, I, I wouldn't even know where to start. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. I had a rhetorical framework. I won't bore you with it now that I was working on for a while. I thought it was going to work, and now I'm not so sure, so I can't put it aside for a while. But I'll pick it up. Like I said, I'm going back to China on June 6th, and I'm sure I'll pick it up again. Well, when you get it, when you yeah. get it figured out, we'll have you back yeah. on. <laughs> okay. That sounds good. <laughs> hopefully it'll be, hopefully someday. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, have a great time in China. Thank you. Where are you going? So I'm going to teach at Tsinghua uh, for a week and a half. Teach. I'm actually going to teach U.S. copyright law there. Tsinghua and, being one of the, probably the premier university in China in Beijing. Yeah, it's one of them. Uh, yeah, Beida and Renmin are also very good in Beijing. And um, but no, it's a, it's a great school. And then I'm actually going to teach in Seoul for two weeks, and then I'm going to go back to China for a conference in Xiamen which is just sort of a basic law professor conference. So it's held in China. There'll be Chinese law professors there, and there'll be law professors from all over the world there. Cool. Yeah. Well, listen, thanks a lot, Anne, and thanks for putting up with the technical difficulties. No, no, no. I, I think I probably caused them, so I appreciate your patience with me. Yeah, it's, no, it's, you know, nobody causes anything. It just, you know, these things just happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, computers are involved, that's definitely yeah, true. Yeah, that's uh, right. And good luck with your uh, your relocation, and uh, so we'll catch up with you once you're in New Hampshire. Okay, thank you.